Hello, welcome to another edition of Legends of Film. I'm William Chamberlain. Today we have an interview with film editor Bud Smith. Mr. Smith has edited such films as Putney Swope, The Exorcist, Flashdance, and Sorcerer. Sorcerer will be showing Saturday, September 13, 2014 at 2 p.m. at the Downtown Public Library. More later, but now on to the interview. What does a film editor do? What a film editor does is normally when a director and a producer and a company starts to shoot a film, the editor is brought in to kind of pre-production, tell them what he needs, whether it would be 35 millimeter picture and 35 soundtrack, or whether it would be now digital, but the digital has to have a time code, and that's the preliminary for the film editor to get everything in sync to start with. And then then you take whatever dailies were shot that day, by the next day you'll have them in sync and ready to go, so you start with seeing whatever they shot. It could be scene 68. That would be the first scene that they shot because of location and time and, and whatever the actor's availability. And so you edit that per what they shot uh, and per this line script. There's always a, a, a script clerk on the set who makes notes of what the director likes, what take, and you try to go for that take and... Uh, and make sure that matches the take that you're going to cut into. If not, you're kind of like left up to your own decision of what you're going, what take you're going to use. And usually I'm in pretty good sync with whoever I'm working with of what the best take is for that character. So that's the basic start of, of a film editor. And then you follow the film throughout the shooting, whether it be three months, you're editing right behind the director, a day or so behind, and you try to keep up, but you can't. So by the end of the shoot, you're about two to three weeks behind the director that uh, that was shooting and the unit, because a lot of times you'll get not just one camera, but you'll wind up with six cameras shooting on something. So you got to go through six different angles to figure out which one's the best. Then a film editor like me, I used to follow the picture from first day of shooting all the way through post-production, which means you lock the picture per negative. You have the negative cutter cut your negative, and at the same time she's doing that, or he, you'd be on the mixing stage doing the, the picture, matching the dialogue, matching the music, matching the sound effects, and... Um, that usually takes minimum of a month to uh, put all the soundtracks together for the picture. So that's basically what a film editor does, or a film editor used to do. I don't know if they do that nowadays. Um, on Sorcerer, the film we're showing, you're credited also as second unit director. What are the responsibilities of a second unit director? Sorcerer was a unique project. We started off with a film, black and white film from France called Wages of Fear. And I had privy of watching the film with a writer that I recommended, Waylon Green. Then we had a meeting with Billy Friedkin after that. And they decided that I should go to South America and scout out all the locations 
per what the script was. So I put a storyboards together and took off for South America, and I went through basically every country in South America, from uh, Colombia to Peru to Brazil to Venezuela, just every place. And I would show the storyboards to the people in those countries, and they would point me where I should go into the Amazon jungle to get those kind of locations. So I was on in pre-production, and then I was on in production, then I was on in post-production, and that took a period of three years of my life. I know it says in the book, I think, it only took two years, but that was after the picture was probably shot. That's my story on uh, the sorcerer. Anyway, my second unit, while I was in the jungle, I had used a 16-millimeter camera to find locations to send back to the studio for Billy Friedkin to look at to see what he likes, and he liked a country called Ecuador. And so we proceeded to bring him to Ecuador and a crew of 18 to scout location and find the particular locations he liked. And during that process, I knew the film so well that I wound up shooting second unit, which means if they had six cameras shooting, I would be like the sixth camera. So that means I was shooting second unit, but I would go off on my own and make shots of the truck traveling on the road or make shots of the jungle, you know, going through the the jungle. And then I would... Uh, have a second unit crew shooting the truck crossing the bridge. So I was kind of involved in pre-production, production, and post-production. That's how I got the credit as second unit, as well as film editor. You've had a long collaboration with the director, William Freakin. You've worked together on Exorcist, The Brink's Job, Cruising, To Live and Die in L.A. How did you two meet? <laughs> It's an ironic story. I was an apprentice, of all things, at Four Star Television, and that was Dick Powell, Charles Boyer, David Niven, Ida Lupino. Dick Powell passed away, so I was out of a job, and I you know, went and did menial labor. And finally, someone called me from David Walter to come and be a librarian in their, you know, for their, their story department. And so I went over, and I would look at 35-millimeter stock footage, decide what I thought would be good for a Western or a a gangster movie or whatever that may be, I would be the librarian for that. And then one day, day, a director uh, decided that he wanted me to be his assistant editor after two weeks of being a librarian. So I went with Terry Sanders to be his film assistant. By the time... Jack Haley Jr. walked in. I was sitting behind the, the moviola, cutting the film, and the director was standing behind me. You know, basically, we'd collaborate what to do. Then that went on with Jack Haley Jr. for six years. And during that period, I met Billy Friedkin, and they put me in charge of editing a film of his called The Bold Men. So we worked together for six months or eight months, on that project while he was shooting and we were cutting and finishing it. And then he did Mayhem on a Sunday Afternoon, which is about football, and I helped him do that. And then he went off to do features with Sonny and Cher, 
and I didn't have the time in the union to be his editor. So I just floundered around in documentaries until one day I was sent to New York, and they were doing a behind-the-scenes for Ed Sullivan, and he was in London with Goodbye, Mr. Chips. So I put together a little behind-the-scenes of Petula Clark and Peter O'Toole, and Petula Clark, we used one of her songs called Downtown, and I would cut all the footage to downtown, and no dialogue, really. I mean, there's no, you know, we didn't have a sound recorder, so we just had a cameraman. So we put that on the Ed Sullivan Show, and it made a big hit. And in the process of doing that, there was a director by the name of Robert Downey Sr., who came into the building that I was working in and looked over my shoulder to see what I was doing, and it was cutting Petula Clark's song to a bunch of visuals shot in London of uh, Goodbye, Mr. Chips. And he liked it so much, he offered me the picture called Putney Swope, and he presented me with a screenplay, and I went home that night. I was in New York, so I was staying in an apartment or a hotel and sat down and read the whole thing in one sitting. And I I laughed my ass off because I thought, you know, this is the funniest script I've ever read. So anyway, I went back the next day and I said, I'd love to cut your movie. And so when he started shooting, I segued from from being a, a trailer editor and a documentary editor into feature films. And we had a running relationship for five years of different films. Putney, Pound, Greaser's Palace, Sticks and Bones. And during that process, Friedkin was in New York doing French Connection, and we used to run into him at the laboratory. We'd say hi, and he'd say, another another disaster on my hands. Anyway, that was kind of his standard outlook on everything. And uh, when he did The Exorcist, he decided to call me and come in after they already had three editors on the picture. And, and I said, I don't want to be a fourth fiddle. He said, no, no, I want you to take over the picture and um, be my head editor. So I said I'd be happy to, and I was in L.A. at the time. So I jumped on a plane and flew to New York, and we sat down, and he asked me to run all the cut footage, and I did, and made some notes, and gave him my notes of what I thought was in the first assembly, what was wrong with it. He said, great. You know, I had nothing else to do. I said, well... You have this big rack of film here. Why don't I just take that and start working on it? He said, okay, fine. And that was the Iraq sequence, which is the opening of the film. And I sat down and I was starting to cut it. And he came in on a Friday night and looked at what I was cutting. And he said, this is a disaster. This is a complete disaster. To kind of uh, ruffle my feathers. So I went home that night and thought about it and came back the next day on a Saturday and Sunday and recut the whole thing to a rhythm of there's a, a guy doing a blacksmith in the background of the of um, in the in the tea scene where Max von Sydow is having tea or coffee and you see this guy going bang 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 and then he washed out and wiped his face off well I got that rhythm of it's one two three four one, two, three, four. So I went back and I started making everything kind of a four beat. And it could be four, eight, twelve, sixteen, whatever you want. But that's kind of how 
the whole opening because there's no dialogue that you really have to follow other than a one scene. And so that's how I proceeded to edit the opening of The Exorcist. And he loved it on the following Monday. He said, just don't don't change a frame. I love it. So that's Billy Friedkin. And sometimes he's up, sometimes he's down. Since we're on The Exorcist, just let me ask you, what was your reaction when you first read the script to The Exorcist? <laughs> well, I, I had never read the book. So, I mean, to me, this was all like, out of the blue. He sent me the script from Warner Brothers, actually brought it to my house. And uh, I didn't read it before I got on the plane. When I got on the plane, I started reading it. And I kept saying, he can't do this. He can't do that. He can't do that. All in my own mind, I'm saying, this is impossible. You can't do that. And lo and behold, when I got to New York and I started looking at the film and the dailies, by God, he did it. I mean, he did it all practical. There was no computer graphics whatsoever. It was all organic done on the set. I think they shot on that for for 11 months of principal photography, and we took probably another year to do the sound effects and music and the sound mixing and finally made it complete in December of, I forget what year that was, 73 or 74. Uh-huh. Well, since we're talking about The Exorcist, what were the challenges in restoring The Exorcist, the extended cut edition? i I got to be honest with you, I had nothing to do with it. Oh, really? No, no I was off doing doing some other film. I forget what it was. But uh, Billy asked me, and I said, Billy, I just can't take the time because I'm working on another movie. And I knew there was one sequence that we would like to would have liked to put in. And that's Linda walking down the steps on her back, upside down. I remember that from dailies, but I have never seen the re, the recut or the restructure of the film. And I understand what they did is they used a lot of uh, sound effects in the background that, uh, which we when we did the film originally, all of our soundtrack was mono. So we everything had to come out of the front of the of the theater, so it, it used to attack you, right from the screen right to your face. But once they spread it and put it around, it started distracting the people. From what I understand, they, no one seemed to like the re recut as much as the original. Going back to Sorcerer on the movie Sorcerer, what impresses me most is the movie is mainly nonverbal, and what were the challenges for you in the editing room? You have to understand, I'm, I come from a documentary background, which, you know, you really cut the film, assemble it, or however you want to, whatever, whatever you want to say, you assemble it, you cut it, and you try to make it all work in, in what you think it should be. But then the producer, who is normally the writer, comes in, they give you basically an outline, and the outline you try to follow in, in documentaries, but it's all kind of a visual media of um, what makes the story work. So by Billy not shooting a bunch of dialogue, which is, was kind of a surprise to me when I read the script, I said, you know, you, you have a total of 30 pages of dialogue. Wally Green, who was the writer, said, yeah, that's, that's the way we decided to structure it. And I said, well, that's cool with me. I love visuals. So we went off and basically 
followed the script, followed the outline, followed where they're going to start, the middle, the end. It was a, it was a pleasure for me because I'm a very visual person. I mean, obviously, I can cut dialogue too, but in music, but uh, a visual experience to me is always the better one. One of the more memorable secrets in Sorcerer is the trucks with nitro uh, crossing the very precarious bridge. Could you discuss the complications of filming or editing that sequence? I'd be happy to. What happens is that bridge, we built a bridge like that in the Dominican Republic. And over the water that we built the bridge, the river dried up. It was that kind of a season. So we had to disassemble the bridge. They tried it. They tried running their truck across it, and they found out a whole bunch of problems because it's a swinging sway bridge. It's a. It's not like bolted down. So then we moved that to another location in in the Dominican Republic, and that river dried up also. So then we sent out scouts, location scouts, to scout a river. And we found one in Mexico that they guaranteed us that it never has dried up in 30-some years. So we proceeded to build a bridge. While we're still in the Dominican Republic shooting, the crew went to, uh, the, the construction crew went to Mexico in this little town called Tuxtepec, Mexico, and proceeded to build this hydraulic bridge. So the hydraulic, you could actually make it go up and go down, which is a new thing for us. What they did is they put a caterpillar onto the bridge, like a like a cable that went out into the water and down under the bridge. It's an eye bolt, and that eye bolt was tied to the the frame of the truck. So the the caterpillar would just lurch one board at a time, and that's how we shot it. it was uh, it was like one step at a time, but it took us six weeks to shoot it. What we had is we had for the storm, we had a I don't know six rainbirds I think shooting water up into the air, and then we had a, I was one or two helicopters blowing the water back down. So it was this torrential storm, and um, visually, you know, that looked like uh, like the storm that uh, you know you don't want to be in. And, but it was all man-made. When we finished shooting that sequence with, with the long lenses and uh, having long lenses shooting a close-up of uh, Roy Scheider or the other guy driving, you wouldn't see the rain in between because you'd be focused only on the face. So during post-production, I had to hire a crew of uh, people because I stayed behind and shot a bunch of rain against black, which is another second unit thing. And it doesn't, uh, what we did is we had to superimpose that on the faces of the drivers and kind of a mid-frame and foreground and so that made it uh, look like the storm was really in their face. But as far as shooting it, like, like Friedkin had his multi-camera crew shooting, but he would only shoot it from early in the morning before the sun got up 
up high enough to see it sun, sunny, and then he would wait, he would fly back to the hotel in a helicopter and um, stay there for I don't know three or four hours, and then get in the helicopter and fly back and shoot in the afternoon into the evening when the sun would go, go behind another mountain. And that's why that's one of the reasons it took six weeks to shoot it, because you couldn't just shoot all from morning till night, because once the sun comes out, it blows the whole effect. We actually lost, I think it was like five trucks that went over, but we didn't lose them. We just they went over, then we drug them out of the river, and had the mechanics work on them and take all the water out of the engine, etc and put them back to work. So we had five copies of each truck. The one that Roy was driving, was he had, we had five of those. And one that Bruno was driving, we had five of those. So that was, uh, you know, we expected some problems with the trucks because they're, you know, World War II trucks. But anyway, we got finally got through that process. And that was the last sequence we shot of the movie. The very last truck was going off the bridge. I think we decided to blow the blow the bridge so that you didn't know if it got off or whether it got stuck until you got further into the film, which was another sequence of the big tree. So that was like kind of a cliffhanger. You edited the Brinks job, and I've always been curious, uh, were there any of the actual robbers of the Brinks heist who were technical advisors on the movie? Oh yeah, there was two of them, and I, you know, the thing is that what they did also, besides being the technical advisors, and getting the extras and finding the locations and helping us uh, get the particular locations that we wanted, the Italian section was kind of ours, kind of owned that. But during the shooting of the film, we had a big sequence called Boylston Square, which we had, I don't know maybe 1,500 extras and trucks and and animals and, uh, you know, vegetables and whatever. That was one of our biggest visual sequences. And when the robbers came into the editing room, held us up for some of the film, they wanted the specific scene called Boylston Square. They came in with masks and guns and roll-away suitcases and so we had no problem with giving them the film. So we just loaded the film up, and they wanted to see it before they loaded it up. So Jerry Huggins, one of my assistants, in his room, he ran some of the dailies so they could see that that was Boylston Square. And, you know, we keep a code book, and we keep a, a note from our script uh, of knowing exactly what Boylston Square sequence the number was. And so they took all that. Luckily, I wasn't there. I was late for work. But when I came in, everyone had uh, this packing tape put on their mouth, and they had editing gloves stuffed in their mouth. They they were all handcuffed behind them. What had happened, of all things, my son was the apprentice, and uh, he was handcuffed, but he had long arms, and he could, they they cut all the wires to the telephones, the ones that on the desk. But he had a coding machine, and it was like kind of behind the machine. And he could uh, behind his back, he could reach up and knock the phone off the hook. And they were when I came in, they were all down on their hands and knees, 
trying to figure out how to dial the telephone. I came in and I said, what the hell is going on? And they're all like, <laughs> So I uh, proceeded to get the tape off their mouths, called down to the production office, and the production office sent up the, the, you know, a couple of guys from the crew, and one of them was called Spanish Eddie. And he proceeded to take a little uh, paper clip and trip the uh, handcuffs. So he could take the handcuffs off all the guys. There was one, two, three, four of four of them. And I proceeded to call the production office and saying, I'm going to have these guys sue you for non-protection of their working facility. But but I didn't sue them. I had a big meeting with uh, the producers and Friedkin. Later that night, I guess, Billy Friedkin got a phone call from the people who took the film, and I guaranteed him it was just a uh, work print, and we had the negative still in the lab in New York, and all we had to do is get reprints, just like you'd you know get prints off of a, out of anything, and so they didn't we didn't really lose anything but a little time, but what happened is I'd already edited the sequence, and put it in a rack of edited material so they really took a, a bunch of film outtakes anyway they called Billy Friedkin that night and wanted to I think it was $50,000 or I forget what it was whatever it cost to shoot that sequence Billy said look get a projector screen the film and enjoy yourself and he hung, and he, and he hung up that was it like that's that's a Best way of saying "fuck you." <laughs> so that was that was his. That's really his mo. I mean, he's uh, you know he's a street kid from Chicago, so you know he's a he's he's come from a pretty tough neighborhood, and he doesn't look like a tough guy, but he's he can take care of himself. He's uh, when I was doing the Karate Kid, he hired the guy that trained the kids to come to his house and train him how to uh, protect himself physically without without using a gun. And so anyway, like I said, he can protect himself. Going to another movie you edited, Flashdance, it's well known Jennifer Beals did not do her own dancing. And what difficulties did you have creating the illusion that Miss Beals uh, did all the dancing? It's called editing. <laughs> It's called just plain editing of you it's no different than using a stunt double that's going to be blown up or be shot or be fall off of a building. It's all stunt doubles. It's like even Steve McQueen admitted he didn't do all the driving in that that chase scene in San Francisco. Although he's a he's a fantastic driver, uh but the you know the picture just did not want him to take the chance in case he got hurt. So based on that theory, we used a dance double to do basically all the shots from her her waist down was the dance double, and sometimes in, on her back, a wide shot. And whenever we would want to see Jennifer Beals, I would cut into a close-up of her shaking her head or shaking. She couldn't dance, number one. And number two, she had a very broad backside, so to speak. 
and the, the dancer was a French girl that was very fit and very tight and looked, you know, you you put a wig on the, the dance double in the same color outfit and have her moving around pretty fast, you can't tell the difference. I mean, I can tell the difference, and the way I edited it, I, I never used her face, but maybe in a, in a wide shot. And when we previewed the film, one of the critics gave it a... a solid 10, a perfect film. And then he found out that it was a dance double and he went back and gave us a zero because of, we used a, a double. We, no one, we didn't tell anyone. Well, why tell the world that you're using a dance double when, uh, you know, when you got lines around the block trying to see the film? But that was, that was just like one of the one of the tricks of film editing is that you can do stuff like that based on if your director and your dancer or your actor whatever it might be knows how to shoot it you know this director knew how to shoot it cuz he was kind of an MTV guy so he shot it you know from a, from the waist up with Jennifer and the waist down on on the the uh, French girl Marine Johan was her name. But anyway, that's that's basically how we did it. In the very last sequence of the film, when she goes in to try to prove that she can be in, in the dance repertoire, she started dancing and fell down and had to get up and start all over again. That's when we cut the sequence the first time. The studio said, we need something better for the ending of the film. So what we did is we went back to the film and we decided, okay, we need a break dancer, we need a gymnast, we need Marine Johan, and then we need Jennifer Beale. So that was four characters for the last sequence of the dance. We had a break guy dancing, doing a spinning, and then we had a gymnast flying over over something, I forget what it was, but uh, but she was a flyer. And then we had Jennifer doing her thing and Marine Johan doing her thing. So basically we mixed up four different characters in that very last sequence and that's when the, the judges started tapping their feet and clapping and doing whatever. That was probably one of the more difficult sequences to shoot because it was bright daytime sunlight and no, you know, no dim lights to hide anything. But we got it cut. No one said the break dancer was the same guy that we did at break dancing in the beginning of the film when she's walking to her house or the bar or whatever. And it was a young black boy with an afro. <laughs> and that stood in for her hair. So, But he also had a mustache. <laughs> but it's the way that you cut into it and cut out of it, you never get to see anything but a, a really a fast spin. And the same thing with the gymnast. When she flew over, you see Jennifer at the beginning of the run and at the end of the run. And the gymnast did all the work in between. So that's, you know, besides all the other dance sequences, which I think are great, that's how we covered up Jennifer Beals. You also edited Cruising, and I've read that in doing research it was first rated X, and could you discuss what you had to do to get the R rating? 
<laughs> well, I hate to discuss that film, but uh, <laughs> but I will. You know, it's a true story. It's a book. And one of the characters that was in The Exorcist really was one of the ones that they thought was the murderer, and he was in prison. So Friedkin went to meet with him and talk about the, this cruising thing. And he said, I didn't kill anyone. But based on his character, he, Billy went ahead and did the film. The, the underground cop, which is Al Pacino, really was one of the cops that was in French Connection. I can't remember his name, Jurgensen. Randy uh, Jurgensen. Randy Jurgensen. He was, he was the, the Al Pacino in real life. And so Billy had worked with him on, on French Connection and, other, and Sorcerer at the beginning. And I think he had him come to Dominican Republic at the end. But Randy was uh, kind of Billy's bodyguard as well as his uh, confidant of what really were the places where these bars really are. And we got permission to shoot in all these bars. And and the guys came in and did what they normally do on a weekend or a weekday. And Friedkin just basically set up his cameras and shot it. And then he intermixed uh, Al Pacino into a lot of these sequences. And uh, there's very little dialogue, as you know, other than the guy blinking yellow lights. And there's one other line somewhere else. The guy wanting to dance. The rest of it's all visual. So it was something that Al had to get out, get his, get his mojo going to get out on the dance floor and dance with these guys. But it's, uh, it's, it's, uh, it was quite a, quite a chore, I think, working on that project. But getting back to the X rating and the R rating, I had to recut the film five times to not the whole film from beginning to end, but various sequences, especially the murders. The murders where they were, we had this knife visually, you could see it going into the, the person's back and then pull it out and you see the blood shoot out. And they would repeat that shot over and over again. And what it was, it was a, you know, a trick knife that the blade would retract. And as it would retract, when you squeeze the handle, the blood would shoot out. And the blood actually shot up, up into the camera lens. And we had that in at one time. The MPAA said, you know, there's no way this is going to get anything but an X. So after five times of trying, we went, we got on the phone and called Hefner in New York, who's the head of the MPAA, and uh, asked Hefner to fly out, screen the film with him at Tadeo on a big screen so you could see everything. Hefner flew out. They put him in the Beverly Hills Hotel and the, you know treated him like a king, and then invited him to come to a screening. And he went to the Tadeo and he screened the whole film from beginning to end. He said, "I don't see a problem." He said, "This is a R-rated film. It's not an X because there's no frontal nudity. There's no, uh, you know, I mean, as far as the murders go." The blood, you've taken care of the blood problem, because that that's where they really freaked out is over the blood. I mean, when the knife goes in, you cut up to the, guy, the guy's face instead of seeing 
a bunch of blood shooting out. So we corrected that over a period of, I don't know how long it took, for five different screenings, but we're still working on the film and sound, doing the sound effects and music, because we would screen it without sound effects and music, so you couldn't hear you know, the grunting and groaning and screaming of the guy being stabbed to death. But anyway, that was finally given an R. But a lot of the theaters that I, you know, I went to some of them, and they would put a thing in the window saying this film is rated X, even though we had got an MPAA rated R. But that didn't help our sales for uh, admission to the theater. I wanted to ask, I saw this movie a long time, it's a television movie, you were the editor on um, a movie called The Death in Canaan, directed by Tony Richardson of Tom Jones fame, and could you just just discuss the collaboration between you two? I've always kind of been a fan of his. Well, I was a big fan of his too, and I still still am, even though he's passed away. I got, uh, the producers were the ones I had worked with on something else, I forget what it was. It wasn't a death in Canaan. But they were the ones that called me and wanted me to meet with Tony. And so I, I met with Tony uh, at, at Warner Brothers. And I had my little script with me. And uh, he said, well, you won't need that script right now. But uh, we just sat down and we talked about The Exorcist. We talked about Sorcerer. We talked about you know my documentary days. And you know he was, he was just a question and answer. And finally, I just, you know, I'd given him all my background, and uh, he loved it and said, okay, let's go to work. And we went, I went out, I said, look, i got to be on location when you're shooting because I want to direct contact with you when we look at dailies. And he said, great, I love it. He he's a very, has a very strange way of talking. He bites his tongue. They talk out of the side of the mouth all the time. Like like that. I mean, that's the way he talks. So anyway, we proceeded to go up north and shoot Death in Canaan. And I had a cutting room in the basement of the hotel. It used to be a bar. And uh, so we had the whole bar to ourselves. And so he'd come in at night after shooting, and we'd run dailies on the Kim editing machine. He'd pat you on the back and say, good boy, good boy. And he'd go... Up to his hotel and go to go to bed. So this went on for the whole shoot. Then we got back to Warner Brothers, and we started back in scene one and started recutting per him. Uh, not not a lot of recutting, but some recutting and some that I hadn't even gotten to. When we cut that. So we cu- did it all at Warner Brothers in a, in a little room off of a. It was a very small room because I had a big cam editing machine an eight plate, and it just barely fit in this room. And then I'd have a trim bin behind me, then then Tony would be in between the trim bin and me, so whenever I'd make a trim, I'd have to reach over him to put the trim on you know, in the bin. So finally, I got my assistant editor to come in there too, and so we had me editing, Tony looking over my shoulder, my assistant editor, and a trim bin, and so I just reached back and handed it to my assistant, Ned Humphreys, and he would take it and hang it on the right hook. And then we had to hire someone else in the next room to reassemble the dailies as I was cutting. 
But death in Canaan was a very strange process for me because normally I'm used to editing a picture and then working with the crew on sound effects and working with the crew on music and working in the stage with the film mixing, sound mixing. Well, there was no no music in the film. There was only one sound effects. It was about a bird. It was one of these strange-looking, long-necked birds. So we had one sound effects in the picture, and that's all. I mean, no music, no sound effects. It was straight recorded dialogue of this boy and the court, the people surrounding the you know the whole situation. It was as pure a film as I can possibly think of, without trying to force you into thinking it. You know, it has music, it has sound effects, and it and it didn't. It uh, it just played on its own. In his memoir, William Freakin stated, "Fixed ideas don't belong in the editing room, just as jazz depends on improvisation and variation." Uh, do you agree to this with this statement? And what's your overall philosophy to film editing? Well, I agree with Billy 100% because so many films that you work on. There's a script that's laid out, and, you know, you try to go by the script. But I did a film called Ladder 49, and it's about fire people putting out fires, and Joaquin Phoenix is one of our main characters. Well, it started off with him at home with his wife and his two kids and going, getting his lunch pail and going to work and going into the fire department and saying hi to all the crew and it was his first day at work, and Travolta, you know, had a scene with him in his office. And then scene 20 came up, and it was about the fire alarm with this big building, and he had to go try to put the building out. out. Well, I said, this is all wrong. Who the hell wants to sit through all this when you have scene 20 that you have to wait for, which is this gigantic fire, with all these buildings burning and fire department coming and uh, helicopters blowing and shooting footage. And uh, so we took that whole sequence after we edited it and moved it to the beginning of the film. And then scene one became a flashback of his life after he fell through the uh, floor of the, of the building and wound up on the, down on the dirt. That's when the flashback started. It started back to scene one. And that's that's why, you, you know, like what Billy says, you just, you just have to go with what you feel. Basically, it could be jazz, you know, riffing, improving, because uh, there's so much improv that, you know, Friedkin would shoot, and Billy and also Bob Downey, when he would shoot a scene... He would tell the guy, keep rolling the camera. Don't ever stop until I tell you to stop. A lot of times he'd just run out of film. You know, he let it roll so long. But sometimes you get jewels that way. You get something that your actors put in a situation he has to continue. That was a great learning experience for me. Not only on Putney, but Pound and Greaser's Palace and Sticks and Bones is uh, the improv and letting people go, go out, go for it, so to speak. 
I would like to thank Bud Smith for doing the interview with us. Remember, come to the Downtown Public Library at 615 Church Street on Saturday, September 13, 2014 at 2 p.m. to see Sorcerer. Today's music is Betrayal, Sorcerer theme by Tangerine Dream.